scoffers. Nobody likes to be laughed at. I certainly don't. You probably don't either. When I was growing up, my mother would say to me, you know, when I'd get embarrassed like that, people laughing at you, she would say, laugh with someone, never at them. Isn't that right? Did you learn that lesson when you were growing up? Yeah, laugh with someone, never at them. So that's sometimes hard to learn scoffers, but scoffers are different than someone just laughing at you for something that you've done. And sometimes I've done some stuff that looks really pretty silly and probably needed to be laughed at. But scoffing is something else. Some scoffing is going after someone for something that they believe in, something they champion. And to say that looks ridiculous and to scoff at them. If you would turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3 in your Bible, Second Peter chapter 3. He talks about this and he answers some interesting things. So Second Peter chapter 3, scoffers, beginning with the first verse. Second, Second Peter's right just before first, second, third. John, Jude, Revelation, right near the end of your Bible. We don't have a lot of writing from Peter. But here is one of his letters, and he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. So let's do that, wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Through the apostles that were given to you. He said in verse 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers were come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. The last days. Well, what would be considered the last days? Well, from our perspective, as compared to Peter's perspective, you see, Peter thought he lived in the last days. That when Jesus was there and when he left, that the world would come in, and that Peter thought, I am living in the very last days. And there were scoffers going at a time. We're going to look at it in a minute. So in the last days. But today, we would say that we live in the very last days because we have a perspective from prophecy that he may not have had, particularly as we look at the book of Revelation, which certainly Peter did not have. So in John's book of Revelation, we can actually look and point exactly in the scriptures exactly where we are in prophetic clock time, can't we? If you know, if you're familiar, went to our class last year, you will remember that we can look and say, there we are, right there between that verse, two verses. And so the next thing to happen is outlined right in Scripture. So we understand from that perspective of the whole Scripture, from Revelation, exactly where we are. And we know from Scripture and from understanding prophecy that we are living in the last days. Now, things have changed since Peter's time. Since Peter's time, we've had the age of enlightenment and the age of reason, the industrial revolution. These things came up in the 1700s, the 18th century, and as the changing, as people began to read, become more educated, as they began to look, as the Protestant Reformation had taken place, and people were looking and being more scholarly, and things were happening in the world of science, 
We're having these things. And so change, drastic change took place where people started exploring the world, going all over the world in their little ships. Can you imagine doing that, being months on those ships and those little boats trying to sail around the world? I just, you know, we get on a plane and we think we've, in four hours, that we've gone really something. But they would take months, months out at sea to get where they were going. And it was dangerous. But they went like never before, at least that we know of. And rising up during that time came the great American Revolution. And they came where we declared our independence, and of which we celebrate on July 4th, founding of our nation. And shortly after that came the French Revolution. And so things in the world were changing in the 18th century like we had never seen before. Up into the 19th century, we see the change. And today, as we look in the 20th century and 21st, we are just amazed at the things that are happening within our world. Things that we never would have thought of, like carrying a phone around in your pocket. And of course, along came as part of that, Charles Darwin. And he came with his evolutionary theory in that, the origin of species, of how man came from monkeys. And as we grew with the whole thing, as he laid that out, evolutionary theory, which we could say is called naturalism, as opposed naturalism, you see, because we live in a post-truth era. Are you aware of that? We had post-modernism, then we had post-postmodernism, and then we've had a, another era flipping in, and now we're in the post-truth where truth does not matter. It's whatever you think. So you choose the facts you like. The ones you don't like, you discard. Aren't you glad your physician doesn't think that way? Can you imagine that? He comes in and says, well, I didn't go to medical school. I didn't want to waste my time. So um, let me look you over. I think you've got something for sure. Why don't we just start taking stuff out until you feel better? You wouldn't go for that, would you? Huh? Doctors over there, would you? You, you don't do that. You went to medical school. You kind of... So you have a better idea, I would hope. But we recognize that in our world today, challenges to Christianity and to the idea of that there's a God are incredibly powerful within our world. So next week, I'm going to start a four-part series dealing with answering the question that is raised by modern-day scholars and scoffers. We will be dealing with the issue of answering the atheist questions and agnostic questions about God, about the world. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I would, from my position, would like to defend the faith. Apologetics, it's called. Defend the faith. So... Next week, we will begin that series. It'll go for four weeks about theism versus naturalism, about Christianity's answer to what is taking place in our world today and around it. So I encourage you to come and take each one of those, each parts of those that we will be starting next week. It happened because of what's happening in our world. Next week, the sermon will be on gravity. Have you ever heard a sermon on gravity before? Never have. Well... 
You come next week, you'll be surprised. Back to Second Peter 3. Back to Second Peter 3. So now he says, after all that, he said, in his last days, in the days that Peter was talking, he said, there are scoffers that are coming and they're following around us and they are saying and they're following their own evil desires. They're coming up with their arguments and they're saying to us, where is this coming he has promised? Where is this coming? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since from the beginning. So they're asking the question, since our ancestors died, have we have that? Where is the promise of his coming? Well, this is only some 50 years after Jesus ascended, if that. And they're already thinking, well, where is he? I thought you said he was coming. He's going to be returning. He's not. Everything is just going on as it always has been. There's no big deal to this. As they are scoffing about it. And that's a good question that we can ask for ourselves. Where is he coming? When is he going to return? I thought you said he was coming. 2,000 years later, we're still here. And embedded in our name, Seventh-day Adventists. What is that about? It's not about the first advent. It's about the second advent of Christ, isn't it? I remember as my dad was was a young man, he told me that as he was going, he said, well, I'll never, uh, I'll never uh, get into medical school because Jesus will come too soon. And he said, I'll never get married. Jesus is coming too soon. I'll never have children. Jesus is coming too soon. I'll never retire because Jesus is coming too soon. And in 95, we buried him. So what about it, they ask. And a legitimate question to ask us, which we will not answer today. You'll be disappointed. Verse 4. And they will say, where is this coming he has promised? Ever since the ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since from the beginning. Uniformity. Uniformitarianism. It's a it's a thought that everything just marches on exactly as it always has been. And so we raise the question. They say they failed to see the cross in the light of history. They failed to see the importance of what happened at the cross as anything other than a Jewish man was put on a cross and killed. Like lots of others. Josephus says in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell, when Jerusalem fell, the Romans took out so many of those zealots and those uh, Jews and put them on crosses that it looked like a forest out around the hills of Jerusalem. But we don't give anything to them, do we? So they failed to see that the cross has any significance in the course of history. To them, there was no spiritual world. Naturalism, which we'll start next week, there's no spiritual world. It's all natural, all what you can feel, see, touch, touch. With your five senses. There's nothing beyond that. Nothing, no other world around that. And so they would say, they would see such thing, and they, they would say, and they would ridicule that. Said, well, if you believe in that, it's absolutely absurd. I would say, it's absurd. They could not see anything in a fulfillment that was happened and started in Palestine. Years ago. So what we have is scoffers. Scoffers at it. 
And they were scoffing. And they were pointing at it. (laughs) You foolish people, I would say. Where is he? Where is he? Their big point was, where is this coming? He has promised. Where is it? Well, Peter, in his response, gives three important responses. And they're going to look at them here. Three important responses. The first one that he goes to is, have all things continued as they have from the beginning. Now, this is a crucial, crucial, important question for us. Have all things, see their question was, well, things have been uniform. They've gone all since our ancestors. Everything has just gone along the same. The question that Peter raises, the question, the answer he wants to give to us, has everything continued on as it always has been? Now, he has an interesting perspective because in verse 5 he said, but they uh, deliberately forget that long ago God's word in the heavens came and into being and from the earth was formed out of the water, by water. And so they talked about creation. So evidently, in their day, they still believed that God started something. So if it has been uniform and everything has continued as and on, what about God's act of intervening and creating the world? Well, today, natural and say, well, that never happened. See? But in Peter's day, there were enough to respond to say there was some sort of a beginning In the beginning. So he's suggesting, what about that start? And then come along, what about that happened? And he continues, verse 6. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Talking about the flood. And he goes, oh, there was no world. The evidence from the scientific community is there was a flood. And we find in the stories across cultures, in other religions, flood. Story of the flood. By the same word, he goes on to say, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That fire, there are three methods of cleansing found in the scriptures. First, by water. Second, by blood. And the third, by fire. We had the flood, we had the cross, and we have the final judgment. Three cleansings of the world. And so the scoffers came and said, well, where is that? It's coming. So Peter lies down and says, have things always continued on as they always have been? In our perspective today, We would say, no, they have not. Because since Peter, we have seen dramatic changes in our world that are far different of a man stepping and walking out on the moon. Number two, second point he wants us to catch and to understand is, is there confusion about time and eternity? Now, this is a question that we need to think about for a little bit because sometimes we don't wrap our mind around this. And the, the time, sometimes we say, uh, you know, let me start this way. Some people perceive heaven as we're going to go sit on a cloud, play a harp, 
and sit in white robes. Doesn't that sound exciting? Not really. Well, at least you live forever sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, and sitting in a white robe. But some people perceive that that is what Christianity and heaven is going to be about. So the concept that's behind that is that time and eternity, that the clock stops, we say time will be no more, so therefore we kind of get into this floaty world. But God does not operate in a place that does not have time and space. But there's confusion about this. He goes on to say in verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. You see, God's time and man's time are not the same. God knows no hurry, and he knows no delay. He knows no hurry, and he knows no delay. If you remember, Martha and Mary were urgent that Jesus would come and heal Lazarus because he was so very sick. Please, come. But there's no emergency with Jesus. He didn't need to worry if Lazarus died. Resurrect him. Very simple. So he wasn't pressed by time, so he wasn't in man's thinking. God's time. And so man trying to put onto God man's time, man's reach, man's expanse, does not fit into God's continuum. But certainly God operates on time because he said in the fullness of time God set forth his son. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, remember? As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God never forces repentance. Never forces it. It's your choice. Never forces it. So the scoffers are coming and say, where is this day for his coming? When is he coming? And we wonder if the third point that he's making is, are we seeing God's long-suffering patience with people and their sins? Is that what we are seeing? I was uh, in seminary class. I learned a lot at seminary, actually, which you find helpful. Um, I, was, um, I was sitting in class with um, Dr. C. Mervyn Maxwell. He taught history, church history. He is the son of... Uncle Arthur Maxwell, that many of you who are my age remember, maybe grew up on those books. Well, they, all the Maxwell boys, there were four of them, all of them became great storytellers. And C. Mervyn Maxwell was a great storyteller, and when he would tell about church history and so forth, he said, would you, boys and girls were all sitting there, seminary students, graduate students, would you like to hear another story? I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another story, yes, of course. Will it be on the test? Yes, of course it will. So you might as well hear it. But he said one day, 
or in class, should we pray for the soon return of Christ? And of course, we're going, well, of course. And he goes, wait, 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 think. Don't rush into that answer too quick. Should we pray for the soon return of Christ? Hmm. Peter said, instead, he, the Lord, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but to everyone to come to repentance. I want the Lord to delay his coming long enough that anyone who will will come to repentance. Some of us have loved ones who are not believing. We love them. We want them to find their way to Christ and to eternal life with him. Please, Lord, continue to work. So in God's perspective, as he's saying, as God's perspective, as he's looking at this, his long-suffering his delay, as we would say, the, the time of his coming, may have more to it than just he's not coming, but that he's not willing that any should perish. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You've read that. Jesus talked about that. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Good question. If that is the future that's coming, how are we to be? How are we to live our lives then? That's the point as he's ending this chapter, as he's looking at this, as he's sharing in his letter. How then are we going to live our lives? Knowing that, His coming is still coming. We still see in that spiritual world that God is still coming. So how are we to live our lives? How is that to be responsive to us? And he goes on to say, you ought to live holy and godly lives. And as you look forward to the day of God and the speed of his coming... That day will come about with the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in heat. This seems rather stern, doesn't it? Well, the elements will melt in heat. Some of suppose maybe he's talking about a nuclear type of thing. I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of an interesting thought. But keeping, he goes on, but in keeping his promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Thank you very much. So then, dear friends, he closes. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, bearing in mind that our God's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, With the wisdom of God gave him, he writes in the same way. 
He writes in the same way as letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And if you have gone through the book of Romans, you may have found that. Which ignorant, he says, Peter goes on, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And I suggest to you that growing in grace and knowledge is the way we live holy, godly lives. How does that happen? The struggle, the struggle is not, the struggle that we have is not, they know the end of the sermon's coming, that's why they're going. The, The struggle is not in trying to be godly and holy. The struggle in our lives, in our busy, incredible world, is to try to find Jesus. And the way we find him, the way we seek him, is to get into his word. Protestants in particular, and Seventh-day Adventists, have been known for hundreds of years as people of the book. It's the opening of scripture That knowledge, that opening of scripture that was incredibly important. Today, in our world, to pick up and read the Bible seems to be such a vanishing thing to have happened. Now I want to talk to you personally, just you, nobody else around, just you. Can't you take some time every day to find your way to God's word? Put the Bible on your bedside stand. Start off simple. Just start. And there's something about seeking Christ in the scriptures that will bless you and help you grow. There's something about just absorbing and reading. Early on, when I started really getting serious about reading the Bible, I was taught to put myself into that story so that as I read the story, I would say, where am I? Am I with the disciples, sitting around wondering who this man is? Am I the person being healed? Am I the person being forgiven? Am I the person being raised from the dead? Where am I in that story? 
And how do I relate to my Lord? Seek Jesus in the scriptures and you will find him. And by doing so, by reading, it does something to your heart and soul to change you. And give you godly lives. By his grace, he does it for you. So it's not trying to put away and get a, stop sinning. It's turning and going to Christ. It's the focus of turning off the deed and turning to the Savior. Do you understand this? It's, it's the principle of not just focusing, I, I need to stop doing this. I need to, instead of doing that, turn your attention to Christ. And he will stop it. Your word, David said, your word, speaking about scripture, is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. So I commend to you, Ellen White, many years ago, came to my alma mater, Pacific Union College. She lived down the hill from there in Angwin. She lived in, by the St. Helena Sand, Terrium and Hospital. And Ellen White, she, old lady, she came up to the school. And they were having the young men and women there. And she had a pulpit there, which I have preached behind. Same pulpit. Practice my sermons behind it. Two of them now I've preached behind. One in the, they used in the 1888 General Conference. I preached from that one too. I tell you. Yes, you can touch me. <laughs> and she said to all the students that were there, and particularly to the pastors that were in training. She said, I commend to you this book. And quoting his words, I commend to you this book. For in it are the words of life. Dear Lord, I thank you for giving us the treasure of scripture. I thank you for the message from Peter. Yes, there are scoffers in our world that are coming around, that are making all kinds of noises and things and Challenges to the faith seem so reasonable, so logic. And they live in the material, in the, in the natural world. They see nothing of the spiritual world. They think then they scoff at that. But Lord, you have given answers. You've given things for us to know, to base our faith. We are not just based on just whims, but on evidence that you have given. But we find those in you. Thank you for revealing to us the scripture, but it may it be the gateway for us to find a relationship and a continued relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. God bless you all.